this is the sport that I do. Like, you know, I've done this sport since I was 11, 10 years of age. I've dedicated and sacrificed my whole life to this sport. OTB AM, live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. Hello, Shane Hannan here, the host of the F1 pod on Off The Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off The Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado... The F1 Pod. The F1 Pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you are very welcome back to the F1 Pod on Off the Ball. It's episode six weekly between now and then and the end of the season, of course, reflecting on uh, the previous weekend's Grand Prix live on Wednesdays in the F1 Pod podcast feed and indeed the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed as well. Wherever you get your podcasts, the F1 Pod on OTB brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. Keep your questions and comments and thoughts coming in. You get myself on Twitter at ShaneHannon01. And delighted to welcome back for episode six. We have Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit and uh, former head of race strategy with the Aston Martin Formula One team. And of course, John Watson as well, the former F1 driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. Bernie and John, how are things? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for having us. It's not bad in Oxford today after a very busy Silverstone. It's nice to relax for a change. And Bernie, I hope, did you, you, when you were doing your job for Sky TV, did you nail you-know-who? I asked you to do that. <laughs> well, actually, I think I probably forgot in Austria, and then I wasn't working for Sky and Silverstone, John, so okay, I, I missed right. that opportunity. Okay. <laughs> uh, John, keep you on your toes, Bernie, for sure. Um, I guess one of the things that came out of Silverstone, guys, and we'll get into the race proper, but I couldn't help but lo- love the uh, the interview that Brad Pitt did with, with Martin Brundle. Uh, it was just strange to see a couple of Hollywood actors uh, walking the the pit lane, and and of course they're they're filming this movie that is I think as yet untitled. Lewis Hamilton is is involved as a as a producer as well. But Bernie, this looks like an a, like an exciting project. It's just strange to see, I guess, the Hollywood lights at a, at an actual real life Grand Prix. Yeah, and it was really interesting. Like I was at Silverstone over the weekend, and you see them and they really tried to blend in. They sort of all had a team kit, and at times it was hard to tell the difference between who was a Pirelli guy for the movie and who was a Pirelli guy in real life. And mm-hmm. um, there was a lot going on. They had a full garage there. There's lots of pictures, you know, of the cars lined up outside the front and sort of a pit wall and stuff that they're doing some filming at. And I think there's a real buzz in both directions. There's a lot of the F1 teams, various mechanics or engineers walking down to look into the garage and see what it looks like. And equally the other way, there's a lot of the crew or the cast walking along the pit lane to see how people are, are operating in real life for CF1. I think it's very different for that for the film world to be forced to do it in such a relentless environment. You know, Saturday was wet, Sunday Sunday's sunny. So they're trying to they're outside of the normal studio controlled atmosphere. So it's really interesting to see it coming together. And it was I'm surprised that, you know, Brad's um interview in Sky really give a lot away a lot more than I thought. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if he if he probably intended or or meant to to say half of of what he did. But Javier Bardem, I think he revealed, is in the movie as well. Uh, so it's Joseph Kosinski. Uh, it's his upcoming F one movie. Uh, still thin on plot details, but apparently, uh, Brad Pitt has played this plays this uh, fictional character uh, who comes back after a 
a brilliant career in F1, I think in the 90s, comes out of retirement uh, for, a, for a relatively small F1 team alongside uh, Joshua Pierce, who's played by Damson Idris. Um, and they were using these these F2 cars, John modified to make, make them look like F1 cars, and they had the cameras in the side of the cars to, to pick up all the speed. Um, quite impressive, albeit Brad Pitt's not hitting the speeds that uh, that the other drivers on the grid are, are, are hitting, but I guess to go around that track at Silverstone with the crowds there, still a bit of pressure. Well, first of all, I mean, movies and Formula One have been bed, bed fellows for quite some time. I mean, there was a movie made back in the 70s and it used the Brabham team as a background. It was called Bobby Deerfield with Al Pacino in the star. Uh, then the Grand Prix back in the 60s, James Garner. And, of course, people like Gene Hackman was amazing. Just a massive Formula One fan would come to Grand Prix. He was a big friend of the Shadows team. This was back in the 70s. But we're up to where we are now, Brad Pitt, in the, in the pit lane, in the paddock, whatever. Uh, I think it's Trevor Carlin's team is actually running what is a Formula 2 car dressed up to look like a Formula 1 car. Duncan Tappy, uh, a young British driver who's raced in various different formulas over the years, will actually be in the car during the, the most of the sort of the serious driving. But, of course, Brad will hop in and out, and I'm sure he'll do it with great style uh, when the cameras are doing the, the close-up shots. But, I mean, it, it's only good for Formula 1 Net, you know, Drive to Survive has done so much to take Formula One out of being just a, a, a Grand Prix weekend. It's not an event. And, and Silverstone, to me, I went there and I thought, well, I'm not at a Formula One race. I'm at Glastonbury Does Formula One. Mm. It just the scale of the event, the scale of the the entire estate. The, I don't know how many people they packed in over the weekend. They were talking about 480,000 or 430,000 over the three days, four days. Phenomenal. And that is in part uh, uh, Brad Pitt being there and the Apex race team. And I think he's called Sonny Hayes. That's the, the character he plays. I mean, if you want to see Brad Pitt acting as Brad Pitt can do, go and see a movie called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He is genius. And if he brings that quality to this movie, and I don't know what the title of the movie will be, but I will certainly look forward to seeing it. And uh, I think Brad Pitt, well, we know he's a star, He's a great star. Yeah, absolutely. Fight Club as well. He's just a, he's just a brilliant actor in everything he does, I think. Sonny Hayes, you're right. He's That's the character. I think he, he divulged in that interview with Martin Brundle. He, his character has a horrible crash, disappears from racing, involves gets involved in other disciplines. And then his friend, who's played by Javier Bardem, is the team owner. This is the team that are last place. They've never scored a point. Um, and they have that young phenom as well, played by Damson Idris. So they bring they bring Brad, Brad Pitt back in from the cold. It was funny just to see them even walk into the walking to the start of the race uh, with the other drivers. John, the, the, I assume the other drivers wouldn't be looking at this going, oh, this is ridiculous. These two Hollywood guys coming in and pretending they're F1 drivers. There would be no egos to play here. Would there? They're all just oh, you're, aware. You've got, to, you've got to be joking. Every driver on the grid's got an ego bigger than a house. <laughs> and the fact that everybody was looking at Brad Pitt and, and Idris, they'd be going, well, what about me? I'm meant to be the star of the show. Look, it's all part of the business. It's, 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 it is show business. And Formula One is getting now closer to show business. The movie's going to take it into that zone. So everybody who was on the grid, and I think the one that I saw closest to Brad Pitt was Carlos Sainz. Mm. And he's from a a good background, a sophisticated family. He knows how to behave. He's not going, hey, Brad, hi, Brad, can I have your autograph? They're all professionals. And Carlos Sainz just walked down onto the grid, stood there and looked absolutely as natural a, a movie star as he's a Grand Prix driver. 
It's amazing, uh, like Bernie. The the I I still have yet to get Silverstone ticked off my my bucket list, but it, it just looks like a carnival atmosphere, it, it, especially when you get a, re- a reasonable bit of good weather as well. And it's always a a random enough podium usually, um. But it just seems like a real exciting one. Like, it, was it the same for for yourself when you were involved in F one? Was it a race that everyone looked forward to? I think when you're involved in it, it's slightly different to this year going more as a spectator. When you're involved in it, it, there's pros and cons. So yeah, like John said, it was 480,000, I think, across this weekend, the biggest turnout we've ever had at Silverstone. Um, it's always, Silverstone brings the best of everything. Friday, everyone got burnt. Saturday, everyone got soaked. So you just get, you need to cover for all eventualities. And it's one where there is a real atmosphere amongst the fans. There's a lot of queuing to get in and out. There's a lot of people wandering around outside the paddock, all of this thing. So it does feel like a really busy race, very different to some others that we go to. Um, as when working in it, it's always the home Grand Prix. And I don't know John's opinion, but a home Grand Prix generally is terrible because the people from the factory, especially Aston Martin, it's literally 10 minutes across the road. Mm-hmm. You'll always say, oh, that part will be all right to deliver to them on a Friday morning. So your parts always come later because it's just across the road and everything always gets pushed back. So you always end up later at the track and it's a very different atmosphere being at home and driving to the track as being in the hotel. It changes your mindset a little bit. It's harder to get in the Saturday night, Sunday zone because you're leaving from your own house and having your own breakfast and got your own things going on. You know, you know, I've never put a wash on over any other Grand Prix again. You know, these little things that actually change your headspace a little bit are different for Silverstone. But it's always a really great atmosphere regardless of the weather. And I think that really shone through a bit this year. I was lucky enough to go. There was a launch party there on on Thursday night. Um, Jessica and Calvin Harris played. And it was really like party, carnival atmosphere. Lots of people, you know, loitering about. Johnny Herbert was on the stage with the old Silverstone trophy and things. So it was a real buzz about the place from, from Thursday onwards. And because everyone's camping and stuff, it brings a slightly different atmosphere to the whole weekend. I did want to get both of your views on something. And we will get to the actual racing shortly. But the... Uh, I guess another one of the headlines and there's always headlines off track as well but uh, Martin Brundle's um, I guess grid walks are a staple of the television experience for people watching Formula 1 and they have been for many years uh, certainly entertaining and and he had this moment with with Cara Delevingne uh, model and um, I guess it was one of those again infamous Martin Brundle awkward moments where the celebrity doesn't want to talk maybe isn't aware of who Martin Brundle is or what he's doing Um and, and and I guess Cara came out afterwards and explained that, you know, the PR person for F1 was was telling her not to speak. And I don't know who, <laughs> a lot of people on, on Twitter seem to be suggesting one was in the wrong, the other was in the wrong. What was your take, Bernie? Like, it, it's a, it, it's just one of those things, Martin brought, like if celebrities were informed as to who he is and what he does, they could avoid this sort of thing. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. Or if, Martin was provided a full list of people that didn't want to speak to him in advance. There's two ways of avoiding the situation. Either you enforce everyone to talk to him or you provide him with a list of people who aren't going to talk to him. That's the two ways around it. Like he obviously does his research to know who everybody is in advance of being on the grid. It's hard to get the full story, I think. We don't really know the full story of what um, what her pre-briefing was before going on the grid. There's lots of very strong opinions, like you say, Obviously, when you step into the paddock, you agree to be filmed. That is a you know a prerequisite of stepping into the paddock is you agree to be on film, but you don't necessarily agree to be interviewed. So there is a slight difference there. Um, so everyone has the right to say, no, I don't want to speak about that or whatever it might be. 
But the grid is slightly different. It's a very privileged position to be in. Um, and it's funny because obviously she is there for PR for that team and the brands that she's supporting. You know, I think she was at the time wearing a branded cap that she's, rumour has it, paid to be wearing on the grid at that time. And this is the very cynical version of me, but if I was wanting to get maximum attention for my brand on the grid, I would refuse to talk to Martin and have some sort of funny thing that we're discussing because I don't actually know who else Martin interviewed on the grid. I've not seen any clips from any other interview on the grid, just the one that was rejected. So to get the ultimate PR out of it, you'd reject the interview. <laughs> so it's inter- <laughs> I don't quite know where it sits on that. And that is me being very cynical, but it has brought more PR than any other interview that was done on that grid on Sunday. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I, I, I similarly have uh, have not seen any other interviews Martin Brundle did, and I know he did others, but uh, certainly clips afterwards. Uh, it's the only one that seems to have done the rounds. Uh, it's a funny one, John, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's it's part and parcel, as you say, of the showbiz and the entertainment side of it. But um, you get these awkward moments from now and, now and again. Well, first of all, I like Bernie's lateral thinking on the whole, you know, did Carol Delevingne deliberately go out of her way not to, to engage in an interview? And consequently, what has, what's gone on to social media is only about that incident on the grid where she wouldn't speak to Martin and that you're the PR person from the team she was associated with, sort of saying no interviews. I mean, fundamentally, and as I understand it, if you are there as the guest of a team or a major sponsor and you are going to be on the grid, there's a natural expectation that there's going to be a cooperation, which does include having an interview. But we've seen on previous occasions and sometimes even in North America, where everybody is much more maybe PR savvy than we are in Europe, that Martin has walked up to somebody and asked for an interview. Now, on, on occasions, Martin has mistaken the person he's talking to for somebody else, which doesn't go down particularly well. But you would expect that on a grid with, with a, a world-famous person as Cara Delevingne, and she's there at the behest of sponsors and being probably remunerated for the, her presence, that you would have a few words, uh, but whatever whatever was decided or whatever went wrong, I don't know. I mean, Martin has got a difficult job on the grid because he, he, he knows the celebrities that are there. He would know which direction to go. And he's being told in his ear, you know, Charlie Humming tops two cars down beside the old Brabham team or whatever you want to describe. So he would be on a mission to catch those people. He's assuming that those people are going to cooperate and, and you know give a decent and uh, a response to... Well, Martin's questions are not stupid questions, but it's not rocket science either. He's not putting them on the spot and asking her about her tattoos or anything personal. It's about, you're here in the grid. What do you think of it? It's fantastic. You're here with this A, B, C or D team. And you'd expect a civil kind of response. So it was disappointing. It was an awkward moment, actually, for everybody who was watching it. Um, And maybe some people did have a laugh at Martin, but it's a tough job he does. Um, And he's been he's had a few knockbacks in the previous seasons. So hopefully, we hope it won't happen again, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly, uh, he's certainly brilliant at what he does, Martin Brundle. And um, yeah. Hold on, hey, hold on. He's good. He's not brilliant. He's very good. <laughs> don't, just, don't get carried away. Sorry. I know it's a subjective thing, John. Apologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's entertaining anyway. Put it that way. It was like, I guess it's one of those moments that just makes you laugh. And it was more entertaining than the, the safety car interlude anyway that uh, during the race itself. Put it that way. Um, I guess on the race itself, uh, Bernie, we'll, we'll get into it. Lando Norris is, is probably where I wanted to start because he was just brilliant. McLaren brilliant. They had the technical upgrade that kind of put them in contention uh, recently in Austria. And uh, like the, the qualifying for both uh, Norris and Oscar Piastri 
second to none. And then he overtakes, of course, uh, Verstappen at the start. And you think this is going to be brilliant. Naturally enough, Verstappen catches him. But what, what a weekend for Lando Norris in particular. Yeah, a really strong weekend for Norris. And, you know, we spoke post-Austria if it was just that Austria maybe suited the McLaren. Obviously, the upgrade was working well because there was a big difference between Norris and Piastri. But this week in those, you know, inter-to-dry conditions in qualifying really shone through. Both of them set in brilliant laps to get the lap done at the right time. And it was effectively a one-lap qualifying because the track improvement was so big. Um, So really strong showing from them. Good to see that upgrade still continuing to work, although many of the track characteristics very similar to Austria and it was good to see such a strong showing from them both you know Piastri was unlucky with the safety car he should have been in the podium position as well so very strong for McLaren very strong for Norris to get you know the podium in Britain compared to where they were in Bahrain at the start of the year it's a phenomenal turnaround for both the team and the driver so yeah, it's very positive going forward. It's interesting the Verstappen bit because I think Verstappen is being a bit reserved off the line because he knows he can get the positions back later. And I think what we've learned is that the McLaren is very strong tyre warm-up. So both at restart and post-safety car, Norris was fit to have the legs on whoever he was fighting despite you know post-safety car Hamilton being on a very strong soft tyre that should have we all thought in the back or some of us thought in the background that soft tyre was going to be much stronger post-safety car restart. So a combination of Norris and McLaren very strong in the tyre at the beginning. Yeah, it is. a It's another landmark victory for, for both Verstappen and um, for Red Bull. So this is his sixth win in a row, equals McLaren's 1988 record as well of 11 consecutive victories for Red Bull. They're unbeaten since Abu Dhabi last year. Uh, and John, is, I mean, as Bernie says, even off the line, he gets that wheel spin, uh, Norris catches them quickly, but but because of their superior car, superiority in, in DRS and all the rest, it, it was always going to be a Verstappen win regardless. Well, it had the makings of it all the way through. I mean, certainly in qualifying, getting pole position, but the McLaren's showing in qualifying was extremely strong. I, I understand, as Bernie's alluded to, that they're able to turn their tyre on in those sort of cooler mixed conditions better than some of the other teams around them. And that was partly the reason why they were on the front row and on the second row of the grid. And, I mean, a great start from Norris to take the lead, but it was inevitable Max was going to pass. What I wasn't maybe quite so happy about was the way that Norris defended once Lewis was behind him. He defended quite aggressively, I felt, coming down the Wellington Strait. And I'm not a fan of seeing drivers moving around aggressively. These are quick cars, and if any contact had occurred, it would have been a major accident. And again, for Oscar Piastri, who I think is really, for me, the star and the, the star of McLaren, and the star of the future at McLaren, I think that he did deserve to be in the podium. He, he was one step behind, I think, in the upgrades. He got the upgrades that Norris had had earlier, but he was still behind where Norris is. Both drivers were outstanding, uh, and it's, it's taken McLaren from a position of where they were head-scratching and not knowing what was going. Remember, James Key left the team out about a month and a bit ago. So how much of the upgrades are the legacy of what he's had, or is that something that's occurred in the time since James Key left? So as you look at it, we're going to another Grand Prix in Hungary in about 10 days' time. Totally different kind of circuit to the high speed of Red Bull Ring and, uh, and Silverstone. So whether the car will perform in, in those circumstances, it's hard to tell. Also, Hungary at this time of year, Central European heat can be oppressive. This weekend, it's going to be nuts. I'm going to Italy. They're talking about 40 plus Celsius. So if it's anything like that at the, Red, at, uh, at the Hungaro Ring, that will change again the dynamic of the cars that are turning the tyres on early 
as opposed to those that are maybe a little bit later and getting to our temperature. Lots of things that, I mean, Bernie knows this better than I do, but lots of things that are factors that apply to a specific circumstances as we had at Silverstone. Yeah, and, and, and Bernie... I mean, John rightly points out Oscar Piastri's performance there and probably hasn't got credit this season because Norris seems to be the, the poster boy very often for McLaren. But uh, I'm, I'm fairly sure his car as well lacks the, the new front wing and knows that, <clears throat> that Norris has. So his performance in particular, uh, both in qualifying and then to get P4, probably disappointed not to get his, his first ever podium. But it is still his best ever finish in a Formula 1, Formula One race for Piastri. Um, and that McLaren team is just so exciting. Yeah, I think the driver lineup's amazing there. And, you know, they've had a bad start to the year. But with the two drivers now, you think they're going to score significant or should score significant points. Totally echo Joins point. Hungary is going to be a very different kettle of fish. So is he going to be fit to, or is the team going to be fit to counter the low speed there, counter the degradation they seem to be having and the softer compounds? There's a lot going on in Hungary that's very different to what we just had. So it'd be interesting to see those teams. There's a lot of teams very close together, how that order shakes up again. Piastri looks very strong. You know, there's a lot of excitement about Piastri pre-season. We've not seen that with the struggles in the car and him struggling to get embedded in the team. But it's very exciting going forward for the rest of the year. And, you know, post-race, he will sit down with the team and they will all fully understand the reason he was not on the podium was just pure luck with the safety car. I think they made the right decisions, I think, you know, he drove well, his pace was good relative to Norris. So everything was there for that to happen. So if he just continues that, then the podiums will come in time. Um, but let's see how the McLaren pace stacks up in Hungary. I should say as well, I know, Bernie, we, we made the predictions last week for uh, for Silverstone. And we, to be fair, for once, I, I said I'd write them, write them both down. I'm fairly sure, now I had gone Max to win, Norris second, which was fine, and then Sainz in third. I'm pretty sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you said Max to win, Hamilton second, Norris third. So I think you got the podium. I mean, right. aside from <laughs> aside from Hamilton and Norris, you got the you got the three people on the podium exactly correct. So that's that's pretty impressive. That's good. Well, I won't correct you because I didn't actually write mine down. So if you've written them down, then we're going to go with that. And that's the right answer, close enough. Exactly. That's pretty impressive, I have to say. Uh, we should we should touch on Hamilton because, uh, John, he was he was so impressive. Um, I think he'd be pretty pleased with the, with the weekend he's had. And that, that battle, uh, as you said, with, with Norris, edgy. But um, Hamilton will be pretty pleased to get the podium. Yes, I mean, I think he was disappointed he didn't get second place because he, he pushed very hard to find a way around Norris. But the McLaren just had speed at different parts of the circuit that Mercedes didn't have. Uh, I mean, Lewis is a phenomenal race driver, and he's one of the cleanest race drivers I've ever seen. Uh, he was having to be on his toes because he was racing against a young driver who's on his way up to achieving greater success, uh, who was prepared to drive in a manner which is not dissimilar to what he would have done in Formula 3. I mean, Lewis might have done that in his opening season. I know at times Lewis was took risks, high risks in his opening season, but he's way, he's, but that was 2007. I mean, how many, I can't even do that mathematics how long ago, 16 years ago. So Lewis now drives in a, is in a manner which is appropriate to a seven times world champion, but a, a driver who's still capable of winning another world championship and give him a car, he will do that. And what will be interesting to see is how, much, how long Red Bull can maintain the advantages that they've enjoyed certainly last year and this year Will they be able to maintain it for a third year in 24? Or will Mercedes go back to the drawing board and come up with something that isn't as radical, but something that's more 
I'd say user-friendly to both drivers. Um, I mean, I would love to see George Russell likewise. So we haven't been talking about George, who I rate extremely highly, and I would put him in the same category as Lewis. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a short ad break. I'm going to pick up on, on George Russell uh, and Alex Alban, in fact, just after this break. But uh, stay with us. Episode six of the F1 pod on Off the Ball with Bernie Collins and John Watson. We'll be back in just a sec. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. All right, you're very welcome back to episode six of the F1 pod on Off the Ball, weekly between now and the end of the season, always live on Wednesdays after race week weekends uh, in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off the Ball daily podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we have Bernie Collins, the F1 pundit, pundit and former head of race strategy with the Aston Martin Formula One team uh, and John Watson, the former F1 driver and five-time Grand Prix winner. Uh, just before the, the break there, John, you were you were talking about uh, George Russell and we were, I guess, rightly given Lewis Hamilton plenty of credit, but but Russell as well, deserves so much credit for, for the season he's having, not least as well, Alex Albon. Yes, I mean, both drivers have had a difficult season. Remember, George Russell won a Grand Prix last year in Brazil. So we know what he's capable of. But again, it's sort of a give and take within the Mercedes team. And Lewis is essentially the number one driver and George is number two. So I don't think there's a written contract that states that. And on occasions, one's outperformed the other. But both are capable of performing at the highest level given the equipment and given the opportunities. Qualifying was better for one than the other, but it was still, you know, going dry, sorry, dry, wet going dry at Silverstone or any racetrack always leads to a grid lineup that may not be the norm. Mercedes benefited out of it on one hand, but George was maybe not quite so far forward as he would have anticipated. Uh, Bernie, Alex Albon, I mean, he drove a super race uh, in the Williams. Uh, they've been fast all year, and I think people have said this, in a straight line, uh, might struggle otherwise, but calmly holding off uh, Charlotte Clare uh, and, and and some very, very important points for his team in eighth as well. So a good weekend for Alex Albon. Yeah, I think, you know, he's had two fantastic weekends. I think Austria and here, um, the straight line speed for Williams definitely benefiting that car setup, but... Albon really fit to make the most out of the car, fit to make whatever strategy they want work, sort of working quite, they seem to be working quite well as a unit, as a team, where the comm seems good across both. It seems calm's decision-making across both. And a bit of a, an acceptance that as a team, they're going to try and make, you know, whatever the strategy is, whatever the goal is for the weekend come together well. And I think that was particularly evident you know, in Austria, where they got the straight line speed right and things. So I I do think that he's showing, he's out driving the car. You know, for that Williams car to finish in that position in Silverstone, yes, they got the safety car or whatever, but still to be fit to hold on to those positions later on in the race is pretty incredible, really. And they've got to be taking all the points they can get. The, the field's a lot closer this year than it has been in the past, so it is easier to pick up those points. But... I think he's really shown, I think, in that car and seems to be getting stronger, if anything. Um, from a strategy perspective, Bernie, like Ferrari, um, <laughs> we seem to always be talking about strategy and uh, in-race decisions when we're talking about Ferrari, but uh, the safety car maybe didn't help. Charlotte Claire does the, makes the double stop. Uh, and I guess there's a lot of focus on, on the weekend with Carlos Sainz, who won at Silverstone last year. Um, he doesn't change tyres during the, the safety car, ends up 10th. So, I mean, they get points, but um, not exactly the points that Ferrari would have been looking for. Yeah, from from starting P4 and P5 on the grid, they're going to be very disappointed with the weekend and there's going to be, I imagine, a very full review of, of how they ended up in that position because 
at the start of the race, they had one Ferrari each with one Mercedes behind. So the pace wasn't poor. And given where the Mercedes finished, then they will be looking at why they ended up in those positions. Now, it's easy to see some of what happened in the fact that as the car ahead with a car directly behind, you're always worried about the undercut threat. And definitely for them, there was a lot of feeling the need to protect from Mercedes stopping too early. But in doing so, the Leclerc was one of the first drivers, I think, to stop and stick to the medium hard strategy, which, you know, ultimately was the incorrect decision. If there hadn't have been a safety car, probably still would have been the wrong decision because Russell was passed very quickly after he boxed. But they didn't seem to react enough to looking at the track condition, looking at how low the degradation was, looking to the fact that everyone else was switching to from the original medium hard one stop to a medium soft one stop. The entire field was swinging their strategy to softer compounds and Ferrari were not. And it feels a bit like, almost like some big tanker that's very slow to turn around and make decisions quickly. That's how it feels. And even you see in the safety car decisions um, for Carlos, a lot of uncertainty on what they're going to do. Are they going to stop? I think there was a few times that tyres were in the pit lane and, uh, you know, Carlos actually asking, right, who's the cars behind that, you know, I might need to come out behind. It just seems like not, the decisions aren't being made quickly enough and without enough question marks over it. So it feels like a, a management higher up than the strategy department on the pit wall type too much communication happening and not enough just straight decisions happening and reacting to it. So they've got to be disappointed. They stopped too early with both cars. They stuck to the medium hard when they shouldn't have. They obviously had the issue with Leclerc. I think it was on Friday. They had no long update on a Friday, which is important, but it was hotter track condition. Their deg for Carlos on Friday on the soft was terrible. Um, I think it was three times the deg that the Mercedes had which is why they, you know, were probably afraid to go to the softer compounds. But they need to get on top of that. And that, you know, fundamentally either a fear of going to the soft rightly or wrongly for their car and a reluctance to switch the strategy resulted in them losing a lot of positions to Mercedes. Yeah, geez, that uh, those degradation um stats compared to Mercedes are are worrying for, for Ferrari to say the least like John it's it, they're just one of those teams that I guess has the fascination of everyone and there's so many fans even here in Ireland but it is the consistency isn't it and, and all those issues that, that Bernie points to but consistency and decision making just seems to be such a massive issue for Ferrari well it's just interesting listening to Bernie and her rationale of, of what took place um, it just seems to me Ferrari's in a situation where the right hand doesn't appear to know what the left hand wants to do and decision-making, certainly when everybody made the pit stops, and ironically, I was going from one part of Silverstone to the other part when all that happened, so I didn't get to see what was going on at the time that the safety car got deployed and the pit stops were being made. But I was surprised to see so many people go onto the soft tower after that stop. I thought, that, that, didn't, that wasn't in the original script that I was aware of, but I wasn't in the pit lane watching every time they were going out in practice or doing qualifying. Nevertheless, I mean, just what Bernie is saying in terms of the the rationale, the thinking. I mean, it's almost as if, Bernie, if you were offered a job at Ferrari, do A, do you think you could do a better job than the team is doing or in conjunction with the people you'd work with, or do you think it's a no-go area? Well, you never quite 
you know, based on my years in the pit, well, you never quite know how a team operates. I was very fortunate in my role in, in Aston Martin in particular, had a very good relationship with my manager who's responsible ultimately for the decisions we take and the results that we have at the track. But when I made a decision as a strategist, that decision, you know, 99% of the time stuck and just that decision was made and actioned and we moved on. And if the decision was incorrect, we went back and reviewed whatever. And we all make incorrect decisions as strategists. That is guaranteed. But it feels like actually at Ferrari, you know, potentially the strategy team is making good decisions, but there's a full conversation then that needs to happen with whoever's in responsible on the pit walls. It feels like those conversations are what's delaying actual decisions being made at track. I can't give you a straight answer to your question, John, because I've not been offered the position and I'm not sure if I would feel about the move to Italy, but mm-hmm. it is a very high pressure role to be a strategist, I think, at Ferrari. And, there's all, you know, I can find reasons in what they did for why they made the decisions they made at the time. And maybe a little bit of his lack of confidence. What they did was sort of safer in a way and then fell back because of the safety car. Um, but it, yeah, it just feels a bit like a poison chalice to me. So I think it would take a lot of money, John. I'll tell you what, Italy is wonderful. The food is fantastic. The weather is normally great. And if you get it right, and the key to Ferrari is when Ferrari is right, and it was right certainly in the days of Ross Braun and Michael Schumacher, and it's never really been as good as that. Subsequently, I mean, Kimi Raikkonen won the World Championship in 2007, and that's the last time a Ferrari driver's been a, a world champion. And with the resources the team has, a technical facility the team, I mean, that team should win every race, every season, every year. Yeah, I tell you what, that you've you've sold it to me, John, with the with the weather and the food and everything else. I tell you, if, if oh sorry, Mark... sorry, the, the red wine's excellent as well. There you go. <laughs> well, if Ferrari want to come calling for me, I'll I'll happily move over, move over to Italy and take the job. My 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 complete lack of uh, race strategy knowledge in uh, compared to uh, Bernie might be the only stumbling block. Uh, so it might be the CV is the issue. But sure, look, if they come calling, uh, I'll have to go. Um, Bernie from your old your old team, uh, Aston Martin. I, like Fernando Alonso was clearly disappointed when he was speaking after the race, and it, it was his worst ra- race of the year. Uh, certainly in qualifying, they were they were definitely disappointed with with how things had gone. Um, it, does it feel like Ferrari and, and Mercedes and even McLaren now have, with their upgrades, especially moved maybe a little bit ahead of them almost? Yeah, it definitely a hundred percent feels like that. It feels like the upgrades that others have brought have changed the order. And you know, there's four teams that we're talking about: Mercedes, Ferrari. Now McLaren and Aston, those four sort of fighting for that P2 position in the championship and the remaining steps that are on the podium each week. I would be really, you know, it does feel like they've drifted over the last few races. Alonso was clearly disappointed. Lance had a, a bad sort of qualifying out. But I think it's going to be very interesting again to see what happens with Budapest. You're back to this low speed, you know, low speed corners, very different track, very different temperature. Does that shuffle the order against it? Does that bring Aston more back into it? And someone like McLaren dropped down the order. So the, I think this weekend is actually, or, you know, two weekends time is going to be very interesting for us to see where the order, because it does feel like Aston have drifted compared to where they were at the start. I wonder if it's a little bit us 
re-managing our expectation you know the first few races of the year we weren't expecting Aston to do well we expected maybe it would be just a Bahrain specific and then Jeddah was a big challenge and then the next one was a big challenge and they seemed to pass all those challenges quite well and now we're expecting them to be P2 and they're not P2 and equally we're expecting you know McLaren to be at the back and they're, they're up in that P2 position so it's this next race I think is going to really we need to sort of average out those teams positions then at the end of that to see on the whole over the year where we think we're going to fall. But I think Aston will be disappointed in the whole team. Um, and, you know, Lance has had a few unfortunate weekends with safety cars and when he's pitted just before, just after. Um, so, yeah, I think they've got they've got more work to do, I think, to get some upgrades onto that car and get them working in order to maintain that position. Um one of the big pieces of news, uh, I want to get both the both of your views on this one is um, is Daniel Ricardo and his return to the to the grid. So, I think some people have described this John as as ruthlessness from Red Bull. But um, Nick De Vries let go after only ten races in his rookie season. Ricardo will replace him now. Uh, of course, he's been the Red Bull reserve driver this season, but he's going, I guess, on loan to to Alfa Tori. Um, so this this is quite an interesting move. Like, were you surprised to see this? Um, it's a pretty ruthless move. I mean, it's got Helmut Marko's identity all over it, but he's responsible for essentially the drivers that Red Bull keep in their portfolio of drivers. One driver who will be disappointed is Liam Lawson, who's one of the junior Red Bull drivers who's in Formula 2. And, uh, I mean, Nick de Vries, I, I had high expectations for this guy. I think he did a fantastic job last year in Monza and the Williams I've been disappointed this year, but I, I don't put it down necessarily to Nick. I think sometimes in a team which is not performing at the level I feel they're all to perform, uh, I just I feel sorry for Nick de Vries. And bringing Danny Ricardo back in, well, it's great for Formula One. Remember, Danny hasn't raced a Formula One car since the end of last year in Abu Dhabi. Well, he's been in a simulator. It's not the same as racing. And he's been in the Red Bull simulator. He's not been in a simulator, as far as I know. That's the Alpha Tori one. Uh, going to Hungary, well, I don't know what he's going to do. If he can outperform, uh, certainly, yeah, Sonoda, then it's been the right decision. If he's running in a similar kind of position that Nick de Vries was running in, then you wonder why. Um, the whole thing happened... Uh, well, I don't know what DeFeast was aware of. He may have been put on notice literally by the team that if you don't perform at Silverstone, you're out of a, out of a seat, out of a drive. It's, it's very tough. I mean, I feel sorry for, for Nick. I think he deserved more time. And I think a lot of people feel that he wasn't given the time. And um, maybe in terms of what he wanted in a car, the team weren't able to give him that. And if you think of Danny Ricardo back his two years at McLaren, outshone by uh, Lando Norris, you know, do you think Lando Norris is a better driver than Daniel Ricciardo? Yeah. What do you think, Bernie? That, the, the, the results indicated that he is. Yeah. But I don't believe it. What I know of Daniel Ricciardo, eight Grand Prix wins. Mm. But since he went to Renault, he never met, or whatever the team was called at that time, Renault. Then he went um, to McLaren. He never really quite recovered the kind of performance thresholds that he had when he was at Red Bull. But a driver doesn't forget how to drive a racing car. There's a reason why McLaren couldn't resolve it. Um, I just hope that if he goes to when he gets into the AlphaTauri, that he's going to be able to regain and refine the form that we know he had. I guess when you look at the Nick, Nick de Vries results, Bernie from the season, it's it's not a surprise in that sense. He, his best finish was twelfth. 
yet to score a point. I qualified by Yuki Sonoda on that team. Um, and uh, Franz tossed the, uh, the team principle that Alfatori had said a few weeks ago that the coming races would would essentially decide what happened with Nick de Vries. And clearly, the follow that the races that followed um, didn't do enough to convince them that de Vries was their man. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, my personal perspective is telling me I've got a few races to achieve a result isn't a great motivator for me as a person and it very much depends on the person but I think you know Red Bull or the Alvatore team to Ross or whatever have history for being harsh with these decisions happening very quickly during the season arguably 11 races isn't a lot to sort of get settled in with a car you know that is struggling I totally agree with John's point on the head-to-head often isn't a great mark of a driver. Ricciardo performed very well against Verstappen. You know, arguably at one point was beating Verstappen as Verstappen was getting settled into that team and then went to Renault and went on to McLaren and did very poorly. The Alpha Tori team scored two points. They've both been from Sonoda. So if you just look at the point score, it's not actually that much different compared to what it could be. So, is Ricciardo going to turn it around enough that they're suddenly going to be scoring loads of points? They're last in the constructors as it stands, so there's definitely something fundamentally wrong in order they should be trying to improve. But it's not shining out to me that one driver is... There's many, many drivers on the grid where the points difference or finish positions is much, much worse than the race versus Snowda. Um, so I think it, you know, it is harsh. It, you have to wonder what the plan is. Is there a plan? Is there a, we need someone to be pushing the Checo seat. We need someone to, we need to be sure who our drivers are next year. But if the plan isn't for what's going to happen fundamentally with Checo, then they should be taking the two youngest, best drivers they currently can and building the team because the car isn't good now. So they should be trying to build the drivers, build the team, work together and work to the future and know that this year is maybe not going to be the year for it. And to change midway through a season is is pretty harsh. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, it's it's a pity for De Vries because we all seen him, you know, stand in last year and it was a very exciting prospect to see what could happen going forward. Do you feel, John, that there's a, a fear of, of a fear of youth when it comes to replacing drivers? That the, you know, giving youth a chance seems to be something that is almost sniffed at by by some team principals, and, and and they really just want to go for the for the experienced driver. Like as you said, Liam Lawson was was heavily linked. He's in the Japanese Super Formula Series as well, uh, and doing really well. So, are you surprised that the teams kind of opt for the experience over youth? Um, I think it's a lot to do with what the future may be at Red Bull. Mm. Uh, I was disappointed, I would just repeat myself, disappointed the team chose to do this. I don't think Defeas was given a fair opportunity. And remember also, Franz Toss is leaving the team at the end of this year, so there's going to be a new manager coming in, albeit it'll still be under the Red Bull umbrella. And there's a, you know, there's a, an element of bringing in a, an experienced driver, albeit a driver who's been out of our Grand Prix car for eight months, been in a simulator, but it's not the same, and he's not been in the same simulator as the Red Bulls in, but whatever. And on and on. And there's you know, talk yourself around in, in circles. I'm delighted Ricardo's back. Uh, I'm not persuaded sitting here now thinking about what's going to happen in Hungary. Is he the, is he the the, the Valhalla that uh, Alpha Tori have not yet found? And uh, just, I don't know. I, I, I would have personally uh, preferred to see De Vries stay in the car. 
maybe up until if you want to change him, give him another three or more races. But you know, putting him in that position is not easy. And it's just if you're not seeing confidence coming from your team and from the management of the team, and you're doing your best with the equipment that you have. I mean, I have been in that situation on one occasion, and it's a very unpleasant situation to be in because all of a sudden you find yourself, you're always on the back foot. All the upgrades are going to the other driver. The team are not then. There's a sort of an unconsciousness that can occur in the team where it's almost like you're just you're like a bad smell. Mm. Yeah, and Bernie, the, the elephant in the room here seems to be Checo Perez to a degree because recently like he's in one of the, the he's in the best car on the grid and and like he's i think now failed to make Q3 five races in a row he's behind Verstappen by 99 points he's only 19 points ahead of Alonso in third in the driver standings now Christian Horner I know has been fully supportive of him he's he's in contract until, under contract until the end of 2024 um but this does this feel like Daniel Ricardo's almost audition for for that Perez seat I think it is. I think it has to, you know, I have to be sort of looking at it, wondering what the team are thinking in that point. I'd like to see them at least give Chaco a better run than they give um, DeRice. I, you know, Chaco has been there for, I think when he gets to maybe Holland this year, he's Verstappen's longest running teammate, I think is the start. And the start of the year, you know, it's not that long ago we were talking about him really challenging for the championship and he's had three, four, five bad races since then. This weekend is an odd one in that I think he ran at the wrong time in Q1. Mm. And that, we don't know exactly where that decision came from, but between the team and the driver, you shouldn't be waiting at the end of a pit lane on a dry and track for however many minutes he was there in order to get the lap done first. That's not how to do the best lap and dry in conditions. Now, arguably, maybe they thought with the Red Bull, the performance should outshine the track improvement, but it didn't. And he ends up going out in P16 by a very small margin, I think, in the end. So there's a bit of a combination. Now, maybe that's just the team's lack of confidence in him or a red flag or whatever it might be. But there needs to be something you know, something needs to change as a whole. And he's he's come out and said he's not worried about it, he's very confident. But that's easy to say, isn't it? You've you know, I've not been a driver, John can probably say, but he's got to be, you know, feeling the pressure from all the conversations that he's getting that's happening, all of the questions he's been asked in interviews, all of the like media work around it. Um so yeah, it is going to be interesting to see how that progresses going forward. And it's a bit disappointing from Chaco given how strong the start of the year was. I was really, you know, feeling like he would it really settled into the team and was really going to make a mark at the start of the year. So let's see how hungry he goes. But you'd like to think someone's at least given him to the shutdown and then have a review. Mm. Even a driver with the mentality even of uh, as strong as, as Chaco Perez, you'd imagine would feel some sort of pressure with Ricardo now back on the grid. Uh, guys, before we let you go, we should get the, I guess, the early uh, predictions for the Hungarian Grand Prix. Uh, albeit it's a bit, it's a bit out, a week and a half out. Last year's podium, just looking at it here. So Verstappen, of course, the winner, followed by the two Mercedes of uh, Hamilton in second and Russell in third. I mean, it's a track where Daniel Ricciardo has had a win before himself in 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 twenty fourteen. Uh, Ocon was the surprise winner for Alpine Renault in in, in twenty twenty one. How do you how do you see this one going, John? Like I guess it's hard not to predict a Verstappen win, but how do you see the rest of the podium? In this case, I think it's very easy to stick the tail on the donkey because the donkey is going to be Max, and I don't see anybody beating him on pace. 
the only thing that can occur, I mean, weather I've mentioned, but you have wet races in Hungary. You can have factors that are beyond the control of the team, which are what Bernie loves sitting in the pit bowl, working out strategies. When do you want to come in? But more importantly, when you go back out on the track. But if it's a normal dry race, hot temperatures, uh, I, I can't see anybody getting within a country mile of Verstappen, whether it's a high-speed circuit or a low-speed circuit like Hungara Ring. Right now, they've got the whole championship sewn up in that car. Where Perez will end up, well, first of all, Perez, he hasn't forgotten how to drive a race car. What's happening is either there's bad timing. That's a great movie, by the way. Nick Roy, you ever see that movie, Bad Timing? Anyway, about the subject. <laughs> Sorry, bad timing from the team, bad timing from the driver, loss of confidence, not getting a car balance that suits you or having something that just you're just off center in your approach or the team's approach to you. And that's not dissimilar in many respects to what's going on in, in, in Alpha Torre with Sonoda and uh, Nicky Fries. He finds himself in a situation where the team are now discussing whether he'll be in the team. He's got a rock-solid contract for 24. Mm. If the team want to remove him, they're going to have to pay through the nose. And I, I would love to know the paperwork in the legal. Remember, one of the best Formula One managers in the business looks after Sergio Perez. He ain't going to be sitting there you're twiddling his thumbs, you know, waiting for Red Bull to come up with some kind of decision. How do you see it going, Bernie? Yeah, I was interested on John's point there at the end with the, the mm -hmm. contracts because all these I think these guys find a way out of everything when they want to. Like I think the rumor was it that Ricardo was paid more not to drive than some of the other drivers were to drive <laughs> post the McLaren contract. But uh, well, yeah, I'm going to say. I'm going to say Verstappen, I'm going to say Paris is going to turn it around and be back on the podium and then I'm going to put Alonso in because I think that Aston's going to come back for, for the Red Bull ring, or for Hungara ring. I, I actually agree with you. I think I think Perez is going to turn around. I'm going to put him third um, and, and I'm going to put Hamilton second. So the same one too as last year, Max, Hamilton and then and then Perez to get his act together. Um, remains to be seen. Hungara ring is always exciting and as, as you said earlier, John, the, the weather and the... The, the European heat or what uh, I don't know which of you guys said it but it certainly will add add something to the mix uh, guys brilliant stuff as always thanks a million for hopping on thank you brilliant stuff that is episode 6 of the F1 pod on Off The Ball uh, in the F1 pod podcast feed the Off The Ball daily podcast feed that was Bernie Collins the F1 pundit and former head of race strategy with the Aston Martin Formula 1 team and John Watson the former F1 driver and five time Grand Prix winner we'll be back very soon with the F1 pod thanks a million the F1 Pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it.